Well, we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you would take your Bibles and return to Luke chapter 15, we pick up with verse 11 in our study of Luke's Gospel. This will be a very familiar passage to you, I'm sure. You'll remember that Jesus is speaking and he's telling some parables. He told them a parable of a lost sheep and a parable of a lost coin. And now he comes to a parable of a lost son. Verse 11, Luke chapter 15, and he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. 
For this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. You'll remember that Jesus is traveling. He's traveling back to Jerusalem, and before long, in chapter 19, he'll arrive, and he'll enter into the city, and he will be hailed as king. People will lay down palms in front of him and shout Hosanna. That's where he's going He's not there yet. A week after that, they will yell for him to be crucified, and he will be. And then on the third day, he will rise. Now, however, he is on the journey. And he's coming into different villages, and he's speaking to different groups of people. Sometimes it's just general multitudes. Sometimes it's Pharisees and scribes and lawyers, and sometimes it's his disciples. And sometimes he speaks very straightforwardly, and sometimes he speaks in parables. And sometimes when he speaks in parables, he's trying to hide the truth, and sometimes he's trying to make it very clear and plain. And so we come this morning to perhaps the greatest of all parables. It is a parable in which, one way or another, we can all find ourselves. We may identify with different people in the story. But it's so easy to read ourselves into the story at some point. Thus far, my favorite description of God's love is that given by A.W. A. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, Because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. This is why I rejoice when we sing something like, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. I have been the recipient of that kind of divine love. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. I hope you've experienced that. I hope you know the love of God in that way. Many of you probably feel similar emotions when you sing those words. The lines are just so suggestive. There's one major problem, however. These beautiful descriptions are not particularly 
comprehensible when you're speaking to the average man or woman on the street. The problem is that metaphors like ocean are abstract and impersonal if you have not experienced it already. And unless you're unless you already have experienced that love, unless you already know the love of God in Christ, those kinds of metaphors that are used when we speak about the love of God really won't have a lot of meaning. Most people better understand God's love through personal illustration. That's pretty much what we have here. Stories of those most intimate human relationships that we engage in. Father and child, husband and wife, brother with brother. That's why we so often quote Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That communicates something without all of the flowery language. This is precisely why the Lord has given us this remarkable story here in Luke 15, the story we commonly call the parable of the prodigal son. Because a story illustrating love in the most fundamental of relationships will more likely be understood by everyone who hears it. The parable could be called the parable of the prodigal God. The word prodigal can mean extremely generous or lavish. And that's certainly a description of who God is. Certainly in God's love, he lavishes his love upon us generously. The story is primarily about that, the the lavishness of God's love, that it is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. But the parable also gives us a unique opportunity to take kind of our own spiritual temperature by observing how we relate to God's extravagant love through the characters that Jesus tells us about here, primarily the characters of these two brothers. Where we stand depends on how well we are able to step into the skin of first the younger brother and then the older. Well, the story begins with a a young man who wants to break away. We've all experienced that, I'm sure. Growing up, we desire as we grow to be free, to get out on our own, to be independent, not to have other people tell us what we need to do, not to have other people, even our parents, control us. And like thousands before and after, he had his reasons and he was not shy about expressing them. He wanted to be his own man, his own boss. He was tired of constantly being told to do this and do that. Take out the trash. Clean your room. Remember to put your robe in the wash. 
Anything that came close to someone controlling him would drive him absolutely crazy. It's how young men are. He longed for a life where he could get up and go where he wanted to go, do what he wanted to do, return home when he pleased. Life at home was getting very claustrophobic for him. And he probably also reasoned that, well, he's only going to be young once. And under the present arrangement, he would be ancient before he was able to enjoy the wealth that he was going to inherit, at least 30 And as he followed that train of thought, he minimized the great blessings that were his. Here's what we do, right? We have tunnel vision. We get so consumed with what we think we don't have that we become very ungrateful concerning the blessings that we do have. All he could see were his unfulfilled desires. It's a very familiar story, maybe even more relevant today when the culture of victimhood has been so finely tuned. In any event, the father saw that further argument was useless. He wasn't going to convince this son that he was making a mistake. And so he gave his son the inheritance that he requested, knowing full well what his son had in mind. And no doubt many would have thought that the father's decision was crazy, but he seems to have understood that some people need to learn the hard way, and his son was one of those. So they parted. The father in grief and sadness, and the son with great excitement and anticipation. He would finally be free, finally be able to live life as he wanted on his terms without anyone judging him, without any constraints. And so we're told in verse 13 that he went on a journey to a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Perhaps it began with a new wardrobe. Perhaps he had himself measured for for some uh, bespoke clothing. Bespoke is the word, correct? Maybe he stopped at the jeweler to pick up a Patek Philippe watch and down the street for a new Rolls-Royce Phantom Camel. The money flowed freely. And surprise, surprise, he found himself, as such people too, to be a very popular young man. Everyone loved him. He suddenly became very funny. Strangers laughed at all his jokes. People wanted to be around him, and this, he thought, was the way life is supposed to be. Of course, eventually, the excitement wears off when one's heart cannot find contentment, then one looks for other sources of excitement. And in order to experience the same thrill, one needs to pursue new pleasures, which lead only to deeper degradation. Even before his money ran low, before the famine came, there were times, no doubt, when in the quiet of the night he thought of home, but then just as quickly as he could put those thoughts out of his mind. But then the famine did come, 
And Jesus' description of what happens next is difficult to hear. It's particularly painful for those of us who know someone who has followed in the footsteps of the prodigal. Verse 15, we read that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. That phrase translated hired himself out literally means he glued himself to, his, to, to a master. And now instead of serving a loving father, he became servant to a stranger. And not only a stranger, but a Gentile at that. A horrible humiliation for a Jew. And he was sent out, we're told, into his master's fields. But he was not sent out to perform good, respectable labor. He wasn't sent out into the fields to sow or to reap. He was sent out into his master's fields to feed swine. How far he had fallen. He had been an heir to a well-off, prosperous, loving father, and now he found himself doing what for a Jew was unspeakably degrading. He was serving a Gentile master and was feeding slop to filthy, unclean pigs. Verse 16 paints the picture. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. What had happened? A few months before, everybody had loved him. He was Mr. Popularity. Came to think of himself, no doubt, as a rising star. And now no one would give him the time of day. Which was needed because he had pawned his new watch (laughs) long ago. But now no one would even give him a husk to chew on. He had sought freedom and he thought he found it, but now the reality sets in. He finds himself in virtual slavery. And that's what sin does, you know. Satan is a liar and he makes sure that sin looks attractive at the start, and he wants you to believe that the laws and the commands of God are actually the things that hold you in bondage. He wants you to believe that to throw off the constraints of God's law is to find freedom. It's the same lie he's been telling since the garden, and there is never any shortage of people willing to buy into it. But it is a lie. The truth is, the true freedom is only found within the boundaries of God's law. And it is only when you go outside of those boundaries that you end up in bondage. Where do you think freedom is found? How many people thought they were exercising their freedom when they began to smoke behind their parents' back? As kids, and now, decades later, in spite of the risks they know to be true, they remain in bondage, unable to break the addiction. Now, some would ask, but pastors, is tobacco really a sin? The Bible doesn't say anything about it. I didn't say tobacco is a sin. A substance in and of itself cannot be 
a sin, but bondage to a substance is. To be enslaved by anything other than Jesus Christ is sin. How many thought they were finding freedom in drugs only to find that like the man who holds a poisonous snake by the tail, it turns to bite them. And the one who told himself, I'm in control, discovers that it is just the opposite. It is the drugs that are in control. Perhaps slowly and imperceptibly at first, and then more quickly, everything that one values in life is lost. How many thought they were finding freedom in illicit sex? only to find their lives empty and their families destroyed. This is the nature of sin. It's the nature of disobedience. Young people, I beg you, do not learn that the hard way. Listen to what I say. Learn from the errors of others. Learn from the story of the prodigal. Don't wait until you find yourself with nothing and no one. Don't wait until you find yourselves surviving on pig slop. That's what it took for the prodigal to come to his senses. But when he came to his senses, everything changed. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, the husks, the slop. But no one was giving him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. What a change from the attitude that this son displayed When he came to his father and said, give me, give me what's mine. I don't want to wait until you die. I want to leave now. He had come to personify now the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. He had become poor in spirit. He had come to mourn over his sin. He had been humbled and he had developed a desperate spiritual hunger. That's the condition that every one of us needs to find ourselves in. We need to, as some translations put it, we need to come to ourselves. We need to recognize our wretched and helpless state. We need to recognize that we are in bondage and that our only hope is found in the grace of God. We just sang it, didn't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. Like me. And the reality is, I don't have to find myself in a pigsty to recognize that I am a wretch. The prodigal came to himself, he came to his senses, and it was as if he looked in the mirror and couldn't believe what he had become. He was a wretch through and through. But even in his wretched condition, there remained a shred of hope. The glimmer of hope did not find its source within himself. He had given up on himself. 
He looked within and there was nothing there but darkness. You know, that's another lie, right? When Oprah Winfrey or Joel Osteen or Deepak Chopra tell you that the answers to your problems are all within you, the real voice you're hearing is the voice of Satan seeking to drag you down to the pit. It is a lie. The only thing inside of you is darkness and sin and evil until you cry out for the grace of God. And then the Holy Spirit comes and fills up that place. The hope that you need is not within you. The hope that you need is to be found on a hill called Calvary. The hope that you need is found in an empty tomb. The hope that you need is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. The hope that you need has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he is your only hope. The prodigal finally came to his senses and found himself alone. As soon as he ran out of money, all those so-called friends suddenly remembered that they had better things to do and they had better places to be. And he finds himself alone and in bondage and he realized he was powerless to free himself. If he was going to be saved, if something was going to change, someone else would have to do it. Someone else would have to be merciful toward him. Someone else would have to be gracious toward him. And he could think of only one who might be such a person. And he reasoned that it was better to be a lowly servant in his father's house than to remain where he was with the pigs. But there was no possible way that he could have been prepared for what awaited him when he approached his father's home. What the son did not realize was that his father had never stopped longing for the safe return of his beloved son. His father had never ceased to scan the horizon in the hopes that he would see his son Returning. One powerful sentence tells the whole story. Verse 20, he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he was still a long way off. What father longing for the return of his son would not recognize that son a long way off. He was not the son who left with his inheritance. He was not wearing fine clothes now. He was covered in rags. But his father knew him. There was no doubt this loving, grieving father knew that this was his son. And Jesus tells us that when the father saw him and recognized him, 
when he recognized that his son had come home, he was not filled with indignation and judgment. He immediately felt compassion for him. And like Peter, who was so anxious to get to Jesus that he couldn't wait for the boat to get to shore, he rather jumped into the water and swam to Jesus. This father runs to greet his son. And he embraced him. And he kissed him. And it wasn't just a a peck. If only English could communicate what Luke is saying here in Greek. He ran to him and embraced him and kissed him again and again and again and again. He slobbered all over him. And when the son was finally able to speak, he spoke those words that he had been rehearsing since the day he left the pigsty to go home. The son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But don't miss this. Compare that with verse 19. Verse 19, as he rehearses what he's going to say to his father, he says this. Well, the end of verse 18 into 19. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That last phrase is missing from verse 21. Which tells you that his father didn't even give him time to finish what he was saying. He entirely ignored what his son was saying and doesn't even address it, doesn't even respond. Instead, he just turns to his servants, his slaves, and says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. The father had his servants bring out the best robe. This would have been a long, stately garment that, that reaches to the feet. The kind worn by kings and noblemen and rich men, which clearly the father was. And then a ring was thrust on his Son's finger, symbolic of sonship and authority. He was being given his place back in the family. Not just a servant. And finally, new sandals are strapped to his calloused feet. The father's slaves went barefoot, not his sons. I wonder if you've ever considered this. The son has been living with pigs. His clothes are covered in slop and pig waste. His hands and feet are crusted over with filth. He's just been walking who knows how long in the hot Palestinian sun. And as his arrival is described, what's missing? 
not one word about a bath. The love of his father is so great, it's as if all the filth and the stench doesn't even register with him. He embraces him, though those clothes are covered with slop and mud and waste. He kisses him, though his hair is matted and he is most likely covered with sores. And then he commands that his son be covered with his best robe, which you have to believe could never be properly cleaned again. And his signet ring is put on this filthy finger and sandals on his filthy feet. And he commands the fattened calf to be slaughtered. My son is home. We're going to have a party. How can we help but see our heavenly father here in this description of this earthly father? He is God who is infinite. He is a consuming fire. But when we turn to him, he is a God who comes running. He comes running to lavish his love upon us. This is the gospel. The gospel of the prodigal God who rushes to meet sinners with love and mercy and grace. Generously, lavishly pouring it out upon us. And there are only two qualifications for this forgiveness. First, we've got to see ourselves before we can see God. This son saw himself one day when he woke up with the pigs. And he recognized who he was and what he had done. We've got to recognize that we are wayward sons and daughters. If we are going to see the love of God, if we know what we are, then we can understand what his love and mercy and grace are. If you don't see yourself as this son saw himself, then you can never comprehend the extent of God's love and grace. If you don't think you are filthy and helpless, then you're never going to come to him. If you still think you can do it on your own, that's what you're going to continue to try to do. But the greater clarity with which we see ourselves, the greater clarity then we can see the grace of God with. When we understand who we really are, then we can start to understand just how amazing God's grace must be if it can save us. The joy of the party described here is no exaggeration. The son has seen himself lost. That's the first thing. Then he has come home. And when he comes home, wow. Like all earthly illustrations of spiritual realities, this, this falls short. Jesus said in, uh, back in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
The party which his father hosted must have been glorious indeed, but it was nothing compared to the joy in heaven when a sinner comes to repentance and faith in Jesus. Are you a follower of Jesus? Has your sin been forgiven through repentance and faith in him? You need to understand that when the love and the grace of God was bestowed upon you, when you came to faith in Jesus, there was a party in heaven, the likes of which you you could not imagine. For you, rejoicing in what God had done for you. But, there's always a party pooper. There's always a killjoy, isn't there? There always seems to be one who only wants to throw water on everybody else's fun. And in this case, it was an older brother. He had been where he always was, verse 25 tells us. He was in the field, working. And as he came in from the field, he heard strange sounds. There's music. And he sees people dancing. And that wasn't an everyday occurrence after all. There was no Spotify. If you're going to have music, you need musicians. And they weren't just hanging around. And so he knew something unusual was going on. And he summoned one of the servants and told him what should have been received as great news. The servant says, verse 27, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And of course, rather than joining the party, the elder brother becomes angry. He became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out. And began pleading with him. He wasn't just a little mad. The language here carries the idea of rage. And he absolutely refuses to go in and join the party. And when his father is told this, his father comes out. And again and again pleads with him to come in and and share in the celebration. Don't be like this, son. This is an occasion for joy. But he would have none of it. In his anger, he finally explodes at his father and says, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. What are we seeing? We're seeing an older son who left his father as surely as the younger son did, even though he was still home. It is possible for us elder brothers to leave the father without leaving the farm. Augustine put it this way in his confessions, for it is not by our feet nor by change of place that we either turn from thee or to thee in darkened affections 
lies the distance from thy face. The young son had gone off to a distant country because of the sins of passion. But the elder son was separated from his father through the sins of his attitude. In the end, he was even further away than his younger brother, and he had not even left the farm. Now, the older son was not all bad. Clearly, he was a respectable, correct Obedient, dutiful son. He was steady and dependable and industrious and probably thrifty. He also had a highly developed moral sense. That means he was self-righteous. None of these things could be said about the younger brother. The older brother was good on the outside. Everyone would have said so, but something was missing. Mark Twain once described someone this way. He was a good man in the worst sense of the word. The older son's heart was completely out of sync with that of his father. In fact, he was sorry his little brother had come home at all. You catch what he calls his brother? He doesn't refer to him as my brother. Speaking to his father, he refers to him as this son of yours. (laughs) He may be your son. I've disowned him. I've got nothing to do with this one. He had come to believe that his position was dependent upon his performance. And he had performed. He had been obedient. He had done everything that a good son was supposed to do. His brother, on the other hand, had done nothing that a good son should do. And so he does not share in his father's joy. He had grown into a sullen, morose, joyless man. There were no festivals in his life. And you have to believe that if the father did kill a goat for him and his friends, he wouldn't have enjoyed it. There is no music in his life, no place for dancing, only serious, tedious, monotony, and boring, spirit-killing self-righteousness. For so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command. Never? He was convinced of his own goodness, and this assurance made change for him impossible. And then he begins to throw out the accusations and the complaints. I never got a party. Here is a a grown man making complaints better suited to an eight-year-old child. Apologies to any eight-year-olds. Do you wonder how older brothers get this way? It's very easy to forget what we were like before we came To the Father. As time passes, we begin to imagine we are good people because we avoid the kinds of sins that the younger son fell into. We avoid those sins of passion, and all the while, the sins of attitude run rampant within us. They're easier to hide. 
We don't regard our jealousy and pride and judgmentalism as sins. We call them faults, mistakes, shortcomings. Or we just say, it's just the way I am. And we try to laugh it off. So we easily become critical and judgmental and unloving. Our surface familiarity with holy things has rendered them dull and insipid and boring. There's a lot of the older brother in many of us, I fear. Our story closes with the elder son standing face to face with his father, fists clenched and mouth twitching in uncontrolled rage, and then quietly and calmly the father answers. Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. And then he repeats the language of his heart. We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And I just think, what grace. I am so thankful for grace. Grace not only for the younger brother, but also for the older. Because I'm the older brother in every respect. I had a brother who brought great grief to my parents. And I was the good son. I was the good son who multiplied my parents' sorrow because I couldn't understand why they didn't just kick my brother out of the house and write him off because he was making the rest of us so miserable. And later I understood. Later I begged their forgiveness. Later I came to know the depth of love that the Father had poured out upon me. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Praise God for grace. We've got to remember that he who fails to recognize himself fails to recognize God. The one who does not understand his own sinfulness cannot understand grace. Are we in a far country like the younger brother because of our passions or are we like the older brother because of our attitudes no matter how you see yourself you need to hear this grace is for you it is offered to each of us the gospel holds out this Offer to everyone who will recognize who they are, who will recognize their sin, who will recognize that they have been estranged from their father. Even if they look at the exterior of their lives and say, I'm pretty good. 
not in the sight of God. What you think is good is like filthy rags before God. God looks at that older brother and the younger brother, and apart from his grace, there is not a difference between them. They are both estranged from him. But God, through the gospel, offers that grace and says, Come, recognize who you are, and then recognize who I am, and I will change you. I will forgive you, and I will make all things new. Let us hold the Father's words close to us, spoken through the earthly father of this parable. Son, you, have, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. That's what God says to his people. We receive an inheritance by his grace. And it will last for eternity. Let's praise God for that together. Father, thank you so much for your grace. I pray, Father, that if there is any here today who recognize themselves and either of the brothers, that you would call them, Father, to your grace that they might humble themselves before you and trust in Jesus and become a true son. Father, this is what we pray in the name of our Savior and our King. Amen. sing of the great faithfulness of our God. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, he has provided. Amen. Amen.